Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. I'm Rima Rattan. Today I'm talking to Dr. Debbie Bargali about her new book, Unmasking the Racial Contract, Indigenous Voices on Racism in the Australian Public Service. Based on the PhD Bargali completed at Queensland University of Technology after taking a voluntary redundancy from the APS in 2013, it uses interviews from 21 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who work in the APS or have previously done so. I spoke to Dr. Bargali about her book late last week. Debbie, thank you for making time for Communication Mixdown. Can you start by telling me what led you to write this book, or rather why you chose this topic for your PhD, which resulted in the book? Hi, thanks, Rima. I start by acknowledging that I'm speaking with you on the unceded lands of the Kwandamuka Nation in the Bayside region of southeast Queensland and pay my respects to elders past and present. I undertook the research because of the way that Indigenous employee census data was collected and reported when I was in the APS in about 2009, 2010, that did not adequately capture the everyday experiences of Indigenous employees in the workplace in the way that we experience it and speak about it in the everyday. The data and findings were framed in ways that I believe positioned Indigenous employees as the problem rather than the APS. Therefore, the Indigenous employees are the problem that need to be fixed. So I wrote the book following my doctoral thesis that won the Stanner Award and that gave me the opportunity to write the book but primarily I wrote the book to privilege the voices of Indigenous employees who informed my research and to make their voices heard. The title of the book is Unmasking the Racial Contract. Can you explain a little bit about what the racial contract is? The racial contract is a theory by philosopher Charles Mills so where the social contract is a theory predominantly used to explain the formation of the state and how that was enabled by a contract between men to decide to live together out of government and developing laws to explain how that would work. Mills argues that the social contract was in fact a racial contract because it's a contract that is only for white people for the benefit of white people. Non-white people were never meant to be signatories to that contract in the first place. So the racial contract, like the social contract, is an abstract way of thinking. And what does it entail? The racial contract is almost like it's a uh, contract that enables non-Indigenous peoples in the Australian context to gain advantages unfairly uh, over non-Indigenous peoples. So that's um, done in a number of ways through meritocracy processes in, in employment, you know, rules, practices, processes. So there's lots of ways that unfair advantages are gained by non-Indigenous peoples to keep Indigenous peoples in their place. That's in the Australian context. Charles Mills uh, was writing in the American context. His, his thesis covers yeah. uh, white people and black people. Mm. And, and of course, they are Indigenous Americans yeah. and there are many, many people of colour in the US. Do, mm -hmm. Can you explain how 
or if he even considers the place of people of color who are who are not black in his in his thesis non-indigenous people of color do benefit from the racial contract in and over indigenous peoples and they would do so also within the context of the Australian public service you know what i'm doing is looking at a system of you know whiteness as a system of power and white privileges are in a system of power so i'm critiquing the system per se and not you know white people necessarily yeah the racial contract is not necessarily about you know skin color either white skin type doesn't buy you you know phenotypical look doesn't buy you membership to you know the racial contract or the you know the club that enables the privileges so it's necessarily being part of that or being considered to be part of that white group so buying into liberalism not not standing up against white supremacy, not um, critiquing liberalism, not speaking up, not taking a step back and allowing spaces for Aboriginal people and Aboriginal voice, taking up unfair advantages when you know so. There's all sorts of ways that people are brought into the racial contract and participate in that racial contract by leaving Indigenous peoples outside, subjugating, alienation, silencing. And microaggressions. Through racial microaggressions. So all of these things buy people, you know, membership to that white club or that racial contract where Aboriginal people were never meant to be signatories in the first place. Critical race theory has appeared in the news in recent weeks after US President Donald Trump condemned it. What is critical race theory and how does it work in Australia, noting that the original term that the term originated in US scholarship? Critical race theory is a body of work, otherwise known as CRT, that emerged in the 70s from the field of critical legal studies in the US and has since spread to other disciplines and is continuing to spread globally. The purpose is uh, to eliminate racial and other forms of oppression. But that being said, CRT has failed to gain much traction in Australia, which is not surprising because, you know, any attempt to place race and racism on the agenda has always been unpopular here. CRT is primarily concerned with transforming relationships of race, racism and power and places race and or racism at the centre of all facets of the research process. CRT challenges Eurocentric and Western research methodological approaches and also has activists and resistance components it is considered to be threatening. That's probably why it's considered to be threatening. There are core tenets to CRT that gives it uh, a global applicability. This includes knowing that racism is ordinary, not aberrational. The understanding of the role and power of white supremacy in creating, reinforcing and maintaining white privilege in order to expose and oppose racial inequality and the critique of liberalism and its notions of rights, equality, equal opportunity, colour blindness and merit. So that's the way that it can be applied globally and I've applied that in the Australian context. You've brought up merit a couple of times in, in our conversation so far and used it in a way that is perhaps unusual to listeners, that, that merit is a problem almost, is what you're implying. Can you explain that a little bit and, and 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 sort of with some contextual information so that people can understand why merit can be problematic when it's a, it's a relatively benign word and you know 
on paper, it sounds like it's a good thing, right? So the Australian Public Service promotes itself as a meritocracy and it's deeply committed to the notion of merit. However, there are concerns around what merit is and the way that merit functions, which makes it negative towards many people, particularly non-Indigenous peoples, in terms of being a concept. So some examples are that in terms of merit in the Australian public service, there's you know, equal opportunity to apply for positions and the, 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 the public service bases its and prides itself on this equal opportunity. But for Indigenous peoples, they don't seem to believe that this merit actually exists. And some examples are, you know, some of my participants state that if you look at what they call identified positions in the public service, there's this idea that only Indigenous people could apply for identified positions, yet identified positions are opened up to absolutely everybody to address against a particular you know set of criteria and some participants state that if you look at the history of identified positions in the australian public service you will see that most of those positions have primarily gone to non-indigenous peoples so merit is deemed to be a myth and that's the way you know i look at it as a critical race theorist that critiques um, merit and liberalism and meritocracy. What other manifestations of racism did you find in the Australian public service? So in order for the racial contract to effectively function, the daily currency of racism is necessarily required and maintained through everyday racism. And one way that racism is manifested in the everyday is through racial microaggressions. So racial microaggressions are described by Daryl, Sue and co as brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioural or environmental indignities, intentional or unintentional that communicate hostile, derogatory or negative racial slights and insults to target persons or groups. And similarly, racial microaggressions are described by other theorists such as Perez, Huber and Solazano as a form of systemic everyday racism used to keep those at the racial margins in their place. Another critical race scholar by the name of Nicola Rollock in the UK tells us that navigating racial microaggressions are the unspoken rules of engagement in the workplace. In terms of my research, in the process of unmasking the racial contract, I developed a taxonomy that groups racial microaggressions experienced by Indigenous employees of the APS into common themes and they're outlined in chapter five and six of of my book, Unmasking the Racial Contracts. So some of these racial microaggressions I've classed along with the myth of merit, some concepts such as cultural cloning. So cultural cloning or the systematic reproduction of sameness is evident through the struggle for Indigenous employees to reach middle and senior leadership positions at the same rate as other non-Indigenous colleagues. Predominantly white recruitment panels ensure an achievement of clonal outcomes. That is the preference for preferred types, mostly white. Cultural cloning is similarly attempted through the various iterations of training, particularly leadership training, where there's an expectation that we should leave our indigeneity at the door. The current approach to government leadership training seeks to be inclusive while underpinned by an aversion to difference. 
Other forms of racial microaggressions include racial silencing and pigeonholing. So Indigenous employees find themselves primarily employed in Indigenous affairs portfolios. This assumes that Indigenous employees do not add value to mainstream work areas. Indigenous employees find that they are racially silenced and excluded by being pigeonholed in this space. Features of racial silencing and pigeonholing include tokenism, exclusion from meetings, cultural isolation, being heard but not listened to, and being out of the information loop. But at the same time as being silenced, Indigenous employees also find themselves as being the native informant, where they are often burdened with the role of native informant, in which they are expected to continually provide cultural advice to co-workers. Participant narratives revealed contradictions in policy intent and practice of recruitment and retention in the APS. Similarly, there was pathologising of cultural values. So indigeneity and Indigenous cultures and expertise are considered not to be valued in the APS as evident in the ways that supervision is conducted and disparaging representations of Indigenous employees are made. Like I said, Indigenous staff, cultural advice, commitments and obligations are trivialised and ridiculed. Participants also revealed experiences of tone policing, facing accusations that they are too emotional when speaking on Indigenous matters and required to adjust their speaking styles in order to be heard. Another form of racial microaggression is the denying of Indigeneity. Closely related to the denial of difference is a culture that denies Indigeneity. Participants reveal experiences when they are both in and out of place. Although recruited as Indigenous employees, participants feel that they are often expected to leave their Indigeneity at the door while working in the white spaces of the APS. Lighter-skinned Indigenous employees reveal experiences where their enunciation of Indigeneity incites racial microaggressions and particular stereotyping. One more form of racial microaggression is the concept of the real Aborigine. Aboriginal identity is highly surveilled in the APS where their notion of the real Aborigine is influenced by historical government obsession of categorising Aboriginal people by blood quantum or skin colour to determine who is and who is not considered to be Aboriginal. This category falsely assumes that phenotype is linked to Indigenous identity. The notion also assumes that the real Aborigine does not live in an urban area and it fuels debate around who is authentic and who is the real Aborigine to designate some people as less Aboriginal than others. Identity is constructed by others based on prescribed stereotypical features. So condescension through racialization results in Indigenous employees feeling unworthy or ashamed and forced to exist in a constant state of challenge, that is having to fight for recognition while being regarded as a challenge. Quite often this leads to the feeling of being always a bridesmaid, never the bride. This sabotaging of career progression is exhausting for Indigenous employees and a constant source of frustration. Another racial microaggression that I identified is this denial of racism. And the denial of interpersonal and institutional racism is common, as is the denial of difference and dismissal of racist experiences on Indigenous employees. Comments that deny the intention to offend or that trivialise the experiences of racism are frequent and complaints are shut down with accusations of being too sensitive. The denial of racism is further demonstrated by inaction and the failure of management to take responsibility for racially informed comments, racist behaviours, racist practices and policies that perpetuate everyday racism. Managers' failures to act on racism and reports of racism makes them complicit in perpetuating white supremacy. 
Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're with Communication Mixdown, and I'm talking to Dr. Debbie Bargalli about her new book, Unmasking the Racial Contract, Indigenous Voices on Racism in the Australian Public Service. It's interesting that you call the 21 people you interviewed in your project co-theorists. What do you mean by that, and, and why did you call them that? Yeah, I've been often asked that question. I actually called the 21 Indigenous peoples I interviewed co-theorists in respect of the fact that um, Indigenous peoples have continually been data-mined and treated as subjects in the research process. I don't view the Indigenous interviewees as subjects to be theorised about. I'm theorising the APS system. It was actually through yarning or having a respectful conversation with the interviewees that allowed us to talk through their experience with and knowledges of that system that actually afforded me the ability to critique and theorising how race operates in that system the way that I did. So that's the reason I actually call the 21 interviewees co-theorists because, you know, our interactions work together to develop the theories that I used and the ways that I use those theories. Why do you think there is a reluctance to see racial difference. And is that unique to Australia? So I think that this reluctance is what Charles Mills would call a strategic, willful white ignorance. This is the refusal to act on what we have been pointing out for over 200 years in Australia, or in the context of Australia. The treatment of the Uluru Statement is is case in point. This is also because of the liberal colourblind approach where, you know, allegedly we don't see colour but by not seeing colour, we are refusing to you know, see people. It's a strategic denial to predominantly maintain the status quo. The reluctance to see racial difference, you know, I believe is not unique to Australia, but must be understood in the way that it is done in the context of each country. You know, forms of denial, denial, silencing, and, and as I said, a willful ignorance. It's almost like a purposeful misunderstanding and misinterpretation on any matter related to race. And that's probably how Mills would explain it as well. Currently, many workplaces, including the APS, provide cultural awareness training. But you, you call for race training in your book. What does, first, what does cultural awareness training entail? And what would programs focused on racial literacy look like? Cultural awareness training is one variety of cultural training with different names such as cultural competency training and cultural safety training, among others. Some deliver in what Puggy Hunter once called Hugger Blackie courses. 
some of this training traps us in some romanticized notions of Aboriginality. Over 25 years of cultural awareness type training has shown that getting to know about the cultures of the person that is othered has not advanced the position of Indigenous peoples. Anti-racism is a practice and something that you do to dismantle structures. Cultural competency is not anti-racism and it does not have the ability to dismantle structural power. As Sivanandam states about passive awareness training, introducing it, practicing it, reproducing it does little more than degrade the black struggle against racism. So we are trapped by this romanticized idea that cultural competency is a panacea for all. It is not anti-racism. And as the second part of your question, racial literacy is not achieved through a one-off training session. To understand race is a field of study in and of itself. The model I advocate for is a combination of critical race theory and critical Indigenous studies. A good example of this is run out of the University of Melbourne by Adette Best, Diane Collada and Lily Brown. Racial literacy requires an unlearning and includes a deep exploration of your own racial location over a period of time, rather than focusing continually on the culture of the other. But what is deeply problematic for me is a current focus on lived experience, absent of theory. It is important for people to tell their stories, but a theoretical framework allows us to identify through those experiences how race operates as a technology of power. When you were speaking, I saw strong parallels with this idea of merit and identified positions. You know, it's, I think you call it tick and flick in your book. It's sort of like we've done it. We, we, say, we, we do meritorious stuff. We've created identified positions. That's done. The issue with merit and merit-based processes is that it's actually a performance, which is non-performative, as what Sarah Ahmed would say. Cultural awareness training is, is another kind of performance, right? Was... Absolutely, it's a performance. And there's a performance for Aboriginal people to continually perform as well. I've actually been involved in having to deliver cultural competency programs because that's what the funding you know provides funding for. And the name is cultural competency. And we've tried to spin it off to be differently by asking people to, you know, look at themselves, look at their own cultures and you know reflect on you know how they're complicit and then we've been accused of being delivering something that wasn't appropriately cultural competency they wanted to know about the little spirits they want to know about the dot arts they want about know about these romanticized notions of aboriginality like our existing experiences don't matter to be an anti-racist is about practice it's about what's being done in the doing what do you do in your practice to dismantle white supremacy. The people you interview and your own background is in the Australian public service. Do you think your findings are isolated to the APS or are there lessons here for other place, other workplaces? I guess I'm, I'm trying to uh, see if we can take your findings and ripple them out to broader uh, society. From what I know, the APS is largely reflective of wider Australian society where there is a racial hierarchy with Indigenous peoples continually being placed at the bottom. Yes, there is a room for solidarity, but non-Indigenous people of colour must ask themselves, how am I complicit in holding up the structures of white supremacy? It'd be delusional for me to think that what I found in the Australian Public Service through my research would not be found in other Australian workplaces. So I, without a doubt, say that the findings that I have found here 
and what I am putting forward as ways to move forward could be applied elsewhere. We always hear that there, there's not enough in the talent pool, there's not enough in the pipeline, there's not enough Indigenous people's experience to take on a number of particular roles, but that's simply not the fact. It is much easier for a workplace to pick up a person of colour or a mouldy person from New Zealand as an Indigenous expert over and above Indigenous peoples, and unfortunately that's the way it does play out in the Australian workforce. There's also this constant deficit thinking about Indigenous people always needing to be mentored or always needing further development or never being good enough. Mm. And there's something to be said. You have to look when we're talking about merit. If we look at the employment ladder, why are so many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples contained at the lower rungs of the APS employment ladder? It's not simply because we're not good enough. There's something much more sinister going on there. Mm. We are coming through universities with degrees, with doctorates at higher numbers than ever before. We are out there, mm. but we aren't being sought out. It may sound cynical, but I have to wonder whether we can ever really break the racial contract because it expects people, non-Indigenous people, non-Indigenous people of colour, to not accept those privileges to relinquish power and whether whether there's an attractive enough reason to do so is up for grabs. All we can do is just try and we just keep chipping away, but I honestly don't see anything changing in my lifetime. Ultimately, our fight is against white supremacy. That is about structures and not individuals per se. We all need to work together in solidarity because that's the only way we will win. That was Dr. Debbie Bargali talking to me about her book, Unmasking the Racial Contract, Indigenous Voices on Racism in the Australian Public Service. That's all we have time for tonight, unfortunately. Many thanks to Debbie for her excellent book and her time. Unmasking the Racial Contract, Indigenous Voices on Racism in the Australian Public Service, which won the 2019 Stanner Award, is available from IATSE's Aboriginal Studies Press. We're going out tonight with a song chosen by Debbie. This is Yotho Yindi with the original version of their song, Treaty.
Promises can disappear Just not by TV 